think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. But either they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is the Boys in Short Pants, episode 69, Q Air Horns, the 70th episode. Uh, my name's Laurent Carboneau. I'm Aitzen Rainville. And uh, it's been a the busiest month in Ottawa in probably some time in terms of at least froth uh, or sizzle, uh, as we've been prone to talking about this. Froth? Um, what, does, what does that make us? Well, it's been frothy. It's been frothy. You know? Just a lot of froth going on. Uh, so... In light of that, we wanted to do a couple minutes on on the all-consuming SNC level I should show, but not too many. Minutes. But not too much, and mostly talk about other things. Um, so, just do you want to kick us off on what you want to talk about with SNC? Let's just alternate back and forth. So, I mean, a, a weekly or a bi-weekly podcast format, whatever whatever category we fall into. I so we sort of go between. It's sort of a planetary schedule. <laughs> the Wanderers kind of... is not exactly an ideal format to follow. Um, the sort of breaking news that has like 15 new developments every week um with all sorts of ins and outs that in and of themselves could be a 20 to 30 minute discussion yes um and snc has had i mean its fair share of coverage i think to say the least uh yeah let's sold it i I don't think there's been anything covered more covered in uh, not Canadian history, <laughs> um, but perhaps the past four the, years. Yeah, the Trudeau government, probably, yeah. Um, if, if not even significant chunk of the, the end years of the Harper government. Oh, yeah, no, I don't remember any similar scandals that consumed a lot of media attention at the time. I, I, don't, think, I don't think Duffy is... Duffy was pretty frothy. I, I don't think there's a lot of froth. Quite the same bar as we are today. Really? Eh? Um, I mean, maybe maybe I recollect poorly. Um, it was. I think it started a little before my formal time in politics. I see. Um, so I was I was less attuned to these sorts of things. But, I see. But nonetheless, um, so I thought an interesting um, way to go about addressing it would just be to go back and forth on sort of top three things you want to talk about. Um, in relation to this, yeah, uh, presuming that most people have a pretty good grasp of what's going on, and then we can just uh, talk about next next steps in the process side of it um, as we wrap up our five minutes on SNC. Sure. Um, so where to begin? Let me start with uh, Jerry Butts' testimony. Yeah, that's where I was going to start as well. So great minds. Um, so one of the things that I, I mean, this is one of the things that a lot of political observers have pointed to out of his testimony was his quote-unquote remarkable candidness um, when he spoke about the factors that were weighed in the cabinet shuffle. Right. Um, and in his remarks, um, they, they were part of his scripted remarks, he makes note of a couple of considerations, um, primarily uh, the Nova Scotia considerations around putting Bernadette Jordan in the cabinet yes. and who that would leave out and what the implications would be on the career of these two uh, more senior in terms of years um, MPs and perhaps that they won't run again and this would result in a lack of incumbents in Nova Scotia, etc. As a funny side note, uh, Jerry Butts leans very hard into the Lisa Raitt School of Political Communication, <laughs> which is to emphasize that you are from Nova Scotia at least five times in every sentence. I, Despite having lived in Ontario for most of your professional life. <laughs> there, there was a tense moment of Nova Scotia. There was, off, yes. Off she was like, well, do you remember when the coal mines closed? <laughs> <laughs> like, It's like, okay, Jerry, all right. Um, but all, all of that was to say, a, a lot of people pointed that and said it was a fascinating moment. I actually found it was one of the more misleading moments, let's say, in his testimony. 
um, because while well, he covered a couple of factors that were certainly relevant, um, he covered some of the more obvious ones, you know, the, the spots to fill, uh, this Nova Scotia politics at play, and he, he mentions briefly the Tor- some of the Toronto dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't talk about arguably some of the most significant ones, and I, I think that's because they were politically inconvenient. Sure. He, he doesn't talk about the performance of cabinet ministers. Well, yeah, that would be... Uh, um, one one way or the that other. That would be perhaps a little too candid. <laughs> um, and then the other big one that he skips over is the Quebec dynamics. Yeah. He, he simply says that, you know, Lametti was appointed to Minister of Justice because he's a preeminent law professor. Yeah. Which, well, to, to a senior post from outside of cabinet. Which is kind of rare in the life of a government. Yes, and despite being a recognized law professor, that is not, by any account, the only reason he got appointed to that position. Mm-hmm. Um, the the fact that he doesn't he didn't mention nor was he pressed, frankly, which I, I found somewhat disappointing, on the Quebec dynamics. Sure. Of that particular promotion, I I think is something I would have liked to see. So I, I sort of felt that uh, Jerry sort of threw it out to a shiny bauble that was the juicy gossip on the Nova Scotia side of things. Yeah. And that additional scrutiny of his remarks sort of got uh, missed. Yes. So that, that's my number one. I'll, I'll throw it over to you for number two. I thought the other, uh, like if, if I had to pick two things last week, there were sort of two incredibly spicy days. One of them was Wednesday, which was when Jerry Buss testified and Michael Warnick and uh, Lee Durant came no. back to testify again. First of all, you have to pick three things. No, no. Oh, three things? Yes. Well, you started off with one. I'm going to start off with one. Yeah, and then we go back and forth, but you can't just pick two things. No, no. I'm just saying these are the spicy days. Okay, like, okay. Go, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Oh, pr- Throw me off here. And Monday, which preceded this, which as goes, that's normally how the calendar works, uh, Jane Philpott resigned from cabinet uh, on Monday, the newly appointed Treasury Board Minister, leaving uh, the Prime Minister with another a new awkward Bryson gap. Uh, but Philpott's resignation kind of set the tone for the week and it from from what i heard internally it sounds like that's when the liberals really realized this was kind of a big deal sure um phil pot and I, i've not been shy about saying this before really is or was one of their best ministers performing quite well in some very tough roles not always taking popular positions and not always popular with opposition politicians but i think anybody who has has worked with or across from her would recognize that she was someone who was quite brilliant and had an incredibly good work ethic and was incredibly competent so to lose her over this was like quite a blow just from a as you say cabinet sort of competence and performance perspective but also no one in the world i think would have accused her of being sort of someone who's doing this for ambition she's not someone who's had a career in the liberal party she was a family doctor and a uh, director of a hospital before this as well as some other stuff that i can't quite remember off the top of my head uh, but she had, you know, a very well-respected career outside of politics, came in, ran in 2015. And, you know, it's not someone people were saying is a potential next leader, I think just in large part because she's never seemed like someone who was all that capital P political. Correct. So losing her, I think, huge blow. And I think it really can't be emphasized enough that that, I think, was probably a wake-up call for them in a big way. So I think Jody Wilson-Raybould, like, I think... Like, I've been publicly critical of her performance as a minister. Like, I thought that she made some really bad calls and defended some really bad decisions, which you kind of have to, but whatever. But, you know, you can take issue with a lot of her performance and still have a lot of respect for the deci- like the integrity she showed and her resolve on this. Like, I think those two things are not incompatible thoughts. Um, but I think she's she's more of a political person with more of a political history and, like... 
he was sort of i didn't quite buy the like you know she's burning the party for no apparent reason conspiracy theory yeah uh but i i could see why it was more believable right for her than it was for say jane philpot so um yeah i think that was that's my my big takeaway i think that was just a huge huge deal and internally i think was taken like as a bit of a five alarm fire that's that's fair uh let me let me bridge back to uh jerry butt's testimony for point numero dos of the evening. yeah by the way our five minutes is going to be more like 12 i think at the end of the day but that's fine <laughs> that's fine um so i mean the other thing that really jumped out at me about jerry butts's testimony was the i mean it, it's back to the cabinet shuffle dynamics but more specifically around his reasoning for putting Judy Wilson-Raybould in Indigenous services or, or for proposing that she Oof. go to Indigenous services. Yeah, and the thing with that is, like, I could have told you that she probably wouldn't take that job. And, like, apparently they've been friends for a long time. And I was like, how did you not realize that that was not going to fly? So, in his speech, at, at one point he said something to the effect that um, Trudeau dedicates a substantial part of his day and really cares about the reconciliation file, etc., um, and then he goes on to say, but we goofed it big time, mea culpa, my bad. Well, it's like those two things are kind of incompatible. Like, frankly, it's like you can't say I spent all day on reconciliation and say I didn't realize that someone who was like a chief in her own right at one point and a regional chief would not want to be basically the hatchet man for the Indian Act, like at Indigenous Services. Like, I could have told you that. Like, it was not... <laughs> It didn't take, like, stunning levels of political insight to, like, know that that was going to be kind of a rocky pitch. Which is which is where the questions start to uh, sort of be... Which is where the questions come from, right? Like, yeah, it's just not credible. Having the mea culpa moment is nice and saying, oh, I screwed up. I, I should have I, known. I should have known better. Yeah. Um, but an oversight of this magnitude... Yeah, I, I don't, it's huge. I don't think can be brushed away. No. Um, saying, oh, I should have realized it. And, and then let, let me let me follow Butts's logic a little further. He he then goes on to say something to the effect that, uh, well, she refused the portfolio because we offered her one out of thirty six, thirty eight, whatever the number is, um, the one out of thirty eight positions that she could not credibly accept. And then because she refused that position, she had to be punished. Or, yes, or he, he doesn't quite say like that. But like, yeah, we we would run. Uh, we would lose control of cabinet if we let uh, ministers decide yeah. which portfolios well, first of to all, take and which ones not to. You don't actually need to let anyone else know, right? <laughs> like, so there's that, that. that's step number one. <laughs> uh, point number two is that Flaherty um, infamously right. did this. Right, that's true. I forgot about that. Har- Harper sort of alludes to it in his eulogy to Flaherty. Um, so th- this is not a completely new thing, but I, I mean... I can understand how Butts not being familiar with cabinet dynamics of other governments perhaps thought that. So, yeah. okay. But saying, oh, this is my bad. He had his moment of realization um, after she presumably declined the portfolio and then said, I still have to move her anyway. I made the mistake, but let me... Yeah, my bad, but you still have to clean it up. <laughs> yeah. I sh- like, normally would follow, yes, sorry, I realized I shouldn't have offered you that portfolio. That makes yes. no sense. You have a perfectly valid reason. I'm going to ask someone else to take that role. Yeah. Not, you refuse my unreasonable request. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> like, absolutely insane. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, so, 
some of the dynamics around this flow into Sheila Copps and some of her statements and much of the uh, debate. So who's, she, who's Sheila Copps again? One second. We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> let, let, me, let me just finish this point really quickly. Okay. And then much of the debate as to whether or not uh, that sort of external liberal um, surrogates have been advancing that um, Judy Wilson-Raybould could have had her most impact on uh, amending, reversing, improving the Indian Act. Yeah. Um, in that position. By administering its programs. By, yes. by being in charge of sure. program administration for four months prior to a federal election, which, like, strikes me as incredibly hollow. Yeah, no, that's very credible. So who's Sheila Copps, by the way, for people who don't know who she is? Sheila Copps um, is a former minister, uh, former liberal minister once upon a time. Uh, in the Cretan and Liberal yep. government, uh, yep. Cretan and Paul Martin governments, yeah, um, infamously had some blowouts uh, with Paul Martin. Oh yeah, um, before leaving government and sort of becoming a columnist in the Hill Times. I, I actually don't know what she's done um, since government, but Cops's Corner, I think, is her Hill Times piece mm. or her Hill Times column. Sheila Cops, incidentally, what Australians call female police officers. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> um, and then since this scandal's broke, she's sort of been playing that surrogate slash pundit slash consultant role on various CBC stations and has really been the target of a lot of criticisms for stating frankly ridiculous things. Well, I mean, like, it, it was frankly racist. Like, yeah. to say, like, it's, I'm just not going to sugarcoat it. Like, she said, well, she would have cared if it was 9,000 indigenous, well, she said aboriginal jobs, actually, not even the courtesy of the correct nomenclature on there. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it was, like, her. it was really racist. <laughs> like, And has since doubled down. On it and con- continues to press that point. Yes, and it wasn't. It wasn't just a simple uh, misspeaking. It was. Oh no, she in, like in yeah, multiple. She's tweets. still doing it. Like yeah. <laughs> she's probably doing it right now. Okay, so that was number two for me. Yes, Go ahead. Uh, I want to talk about, and I think you alluded to this on Twitter at one point, but the the sort of. Uh, the clip they will play for public servants to show them what to do. The, the Goofus and Gallant clip for how and how not to respond to parliamentary questions what as is, a public what is, servant. What is Goofus and Gallant? What's, what's this I think reference? Goofus and Gallant were American sort of like storybook characters for children that were used to show, here's what you do, here's what you don't do. Gallant was the good one. Goofus was the, the miserable one who was sort of a, of a prick. Anyway, so uh, the clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Warnick, who we t- have discussed at length already about his first testimony, and I think we can talk another time about his second I think more of the same is probably what we can say about that. Um, but uh, he was joined at the stand by Natalie Drouin, who was the Deputy Minister for Justice, also back for a second time. And both of them faced a lot of questions. And I have to say just that the difference there was really astonishing in terms of Warnick being combative, defensive, yes. like quite, like clearly someone who no one has really like, dressed down in a even semi-public way in like maybe 30 years and it shows uh like he was like it was visible how much he resented like having to be there and how much he resented having to answer to mps like he kept saying i've had the highest clearances like at the in the canadian government many times i like it was it was like genuinely like an absolutely bafflingly bad performance i suspect upon his resignation in weeks if not yes. months he'll start a political party uh preaching the civility of yeah. civility and technocracy yes i i do have my over and under by the end of march is my uh 
Your your bat? Yeah. I think that's reasonable. Yeah. Uh, But Natalie Drouin, who Right after the budget. Answered questions super calmly, very, like, and really had a good sense of where her boundaries were. She was like, I can't answer that because, like, I wasn't privy to that information, and here's why. And, like, gave really good reasons. And um, just right there, I thought that was, like, didn't come off as political, came off as someone who was just doing her best to inform Parliament in a way that was respectful of the fact that she works for the government and not parliament but still mm-hmm. like i yeah super respectful uh v- various female colleagues of mine have pointed out that the sort of expectation was that like or they, the sort of like it shows the gap in like how far you can get being like a bombastic clown as a dude and how far you <laughs> you you have like you cannot do that as a woman well uh which like i was like that is that's a very fair point and i just wanted to, to flag it because we are two dudes and i you know, I, we have dude perspectives, and I thought it was an important one to, to get on the air here. But yeah. I mean, I think I think that's fair. But I think uh, Warnick is, I mean, gen- just coming... gen- gender aside, like the, the vast yeah. majority of male oh, yes. servants behave in the exact same manner as Troy, which is the manner no, 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 you expected of them. Yes, but like certainly, it like it goes to show how much latitude you are afforded. Sure, right. Also, his showing up with the printout stack of of mean tweets oh, people Lord. have like. There was an MP in the room that literally just said to him when he dropped the stack on the table, grow up. Like, it was just like, the MPs were just incredulous at this. They're like, are you kidding? So, so I was waiting, I was waiting for, uh, I mean, I was hoping to get one of those scribbled or whatever um, online PDFs so I could review them myself, see yes. if, they, if they were translated to be tabled in both official languages. <laughs> um, but I had to settle for summaries by CBC and Toronto Star. Yeah. And I was really wondering if there were going to be death threats, um, because that that is obviously yeah, a, that's not a good. very bright and significant line yeah. between what might constitute uh, intimidation of a witness. Uh, which, is, which, yeah, which, I forgot which about is, that. Which is what... He said, this may be a breach of your privilege, <laughs> attempted intimidation of a witness. Like, um, come as, on. As opposed to just, you know... Uh, you suck. Uh, yeah, like yeah. I mean, not not to endorse any of the comments. No, yeah, like it's don't like do that. I, undoubtedly, but. but I I think a lot of it is par for the course for living public lives. Yeah, not, not that it should be, not that it's a good thing, uh, but insofar as going and claiming to be intimidated in front of a parliamentary committee, I, I think that's a it. Little did not come off as very credible. Let's put out it that way. There, yeah. yeah. What was your third thing? Um, so let, let me do... Also, uh, we're at like nearly 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it goes quick. Let, let me do a, a rapid fire of a sure. couple points. Um, so, hey, come on. No, you don't just, just, just I wish for more wishes. <laughs> just quit. Um, so in Dwayne's testimony, she made reference to a report yeah. on the economic impacts of SNC pulling out um, that PCO... Uh, it wasn't economic impacts as such. I think it was sort of like legal options. Mm. Because why would Justice have been preparing a economic impact analysis? That's not the Yeah, you're right. Okay, anyway. It, yeah. was, it, was, it was, on, was a report. Yes. Yes. For Doesn't all intents purposes, yeah. re- report is sufficient here. Um, was repairing, uh, preparing a report on SNC uh, at the direction of PCO. And the minister's office put the kibosh on it. And liberal observers everywhere started pointing to this and saying, aha, smoking gun. Yeah. Um, she is the one interfering. Like, she, it's basically like there's a report in, like, a sealed vault that says, like, actually, this is good. <laughs> and, like, she didn't want them to see it. But 
like at, at the end of the day, this struck me as uh, the justice minister or the attorney general uh, interference uh, interfering in the interference. <laughs> um, that it was more or less an end run around her. Yeah. That if PMO down through PCO is commissioning reports out of your department. Yeah. Uh, no, and especially without because, your yeah. knowledge or what have and you. Like we, if, we don't know the exact circumstances. But. Yeah. And like if I were in her situation, and let's assume that I take the rule of law incredibly seriously and that I think the law is magic like lawyers do. Um, which, law is important. Law is important. Everyone's going to... Okay. But the point is that if, if you perceive that there is a campaign of inappropriate pressure, you have a feeling that... Even if you agreed with the analysis, because you really have to be seen and justice has to be seen as being beyond partisan considerations, I think the minute that someone like repeatedly intimidates you, or not intimidates, but even just like pressures you sure. to do this kind of thing, you, you can't at that point intervene because at that point, that decision, even if you agree with the analysis, looks tainted and like is a disservice to the justice system. I think that's probably where her mindset was at that point, speculating, obviously, but just from the sense I get of her testimony and of other people's testimonies, that's the kind of picture I have in my head of someone who believed very strongly that even if she agreed with the analysis, which it doesn't really seem she did, and she seems to have trusted her public prosecutor, that even if she agreed with the analysis, her intervention would have been inappropriate because it was, you know, rightly or not, could have been perceived as the product of political inappropriate political interference. Sure. Like, I think that's easy enough to say. Um, let, let me get off uh, a couple So she others. doesn't want to give them ammunition. and so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that goes, and, I mean, that helps to explain where the, why don't we ask Beverly McLaughlin to do an external report? Yes. Um, doesn't make a lot of sense either. Why don't we ask someone else to give an opinion that will be used to pressure you even further? Well, and that's kind of like as what... As you will be seen as deviating from outside yeah, an like... independent third party... So it, we'll, we'll get someone to give us the answer we want and use that answer to pressure you. Yeah, it like, seems like uh, they thought she would have been fine had she like been reassured that people would have told her it was okay. But I don't. I think she was past that. It, like, was, it seems like yeah. That that option was a continuation of the we will publish supportive op-eds option. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's you will get covered. Not, yeah. not we will find the most preeminent legal expert on this particular issue. Yes, because like frankly, the Department of Justice. And the public prosecutor are the people in Canada who know the most about this legislation, <laughs> being that they had drafted it mere months ago. Yes. Um, so, so the outside counsel argument strikes strikes a little hollow. Yes. One, one last point to make. I just want to note the conflict between how the OECD is interpreting mm-hmm. uh, national economic That was going to be my third point. God damn it. <laughs> and, and, and how the clerk of the Privy Council in his yes. testimony... Um, explained that, so, which was 100% wrong. So if, if my take on this is that there, the legislation, like the statute as written, does allow you to consider sort of the impact on innocence, right? Which I think when you're talking about jobs, that, okay, jobs and pensions, I think it's legitimate to consider that to an extent. I think where that consideration ends and where the sort of line of explicit industrial policy, which is the national economic interest argument or the, the consideration that is mooted from consideration by the OECD guidelines or rules is not, is where they're starting to talk about headquarters and the headquarters moving. Cause by then you're no longer really talking about jobs. You're talking about a sort of strategic industrial asset. Like, I think that's really where that line is crossed and they're talking about it in the language of industrial policy and not really jobs. Like if you hear them, if you 
kind of read what they're actually saying. I think they want to frame it as jobs, but it's not really what's being discussed. So to to make a fourth point of my <laughs> many points uh, and, and to build off this, um, I mean Pierre Polyev's questioning around the HQ, I found uh, of War- of Warnick on his uh, second round of testimony. Yeah. I thought was among the most interesting, mostly because it seemed that Polyev's team had done the due diligence around what was said in the press and the possibilities of the HQ moving. Yes. And apparently it wasn't quite as substantial a risk as the well, court was playing it out the case the case to Dippo had made a condition of a loan that they would keep the HQ in Montreal. Uh, Wernick responded that they can do that, but like actually Shell move the operations, which yeah. was like, well, okay, that seems like a, another problem to address, really. But yeah, there but, you go. But the other point I want to make on that is uh, CBC recently did a good piece on this, talking about, and there, there have been several pieces on this, but the CBC one struck me for having the numbers, um, which was how many jobs are actually at risk here. Right. Um, it turns out and, Vegeta would have been sorely disappointed. <laughs> it will be far under 9,000. And, and the 9,000 number, so half of those jobs are outside of Quebec, of those 9,000. Yes. Um, about 700 So they only those, count for half. Like, So it's really a quarter. About <laughs> about 700 of those are in the headquarters. Yeah. So, I mean, if the headquarter, headquarters moves... It's not nothing. There's, like, there's 700. Let's, yeah. Let's call it... Let's, it's not nothing. Let's start at 700 and work our way up. Yeah. The other jobs are presumably working on infrastructure projects at the federal and provincial levels. Uh, if the band comes in, they can't bid on new ones, those jobs will go elsewhere over a course of several years. Yeah. Um, and the provincial infrastructure continues to plug along. Yes. Um, it's not like SNC, a company that or that competes for infrastructure projects in Madagascar, yeah. is suddenly not going to be operating in Canada at all. Right. Well, they have the provincial contracts for one. And then also in a lot of countries, they'll still be able to operate. Not all, it's worth saying, because some have sort of like mutual interlocking kind of like bans. If you're banned in your home country or in another sure. country, then there's stuff so, that kicks so in. So, I but... mean, if they do drafting work in Montreal in relation to international projects, sure. Some of that might be impacted. Yeah. Um, but you know, SNC is a big company. I'm sure they will be able to find jurisdictions yes. in which they can operate. They've always been very, yes. uh, very nimble in that regard. Well, it's, yes, that's true. It's also worth saying that when Sears went bankrupt, that was about 12,000 jobs across the country, right? And also there was a lot of monkeying around with the pensions, which like the liberal government was given several options to do something about, including sure. NDP private members bill, some other stuff like, and they didn't go for any of it. So it just, it rings a little hollow. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think that probably wraps us up on that because we're 26 and you sort of got my third point in your, your sort of like burst fire round there. Yeah, it turns out I had more points I wanted to make. I, That's okay. I, I still have more, but we'll leave it there. We only went five times as long as we intended. <laughs> That's, you know, what's what's a little 5x between friends? Um, the ethics commissioner recently made an interesting ruling and that was the thing you wanted to talk about. And well, did you want me to read elements of that? Yeah. So, I mean, let me, let me set the stage for this a little bit. Um, in speaking to friends who are... So, I mean, first of all, this, for, for any new listeners, it's going to sort of throw back to some of our, uh, original, our, OG. our original work. From the EP, even before our first album. Um, once Upon a Time, around rules for uh, either designated public office holders or reporting public office holders, depending on which uh, legislation's nomenclature we're, we're referring to. Um, but I believe in this, it's reporting public office holders, um, who are ministers... Uh, political staff as well as senior departmental officials officers of parliament I think there's a few other categories um, who fall under special uh, obligations insofar as the lobbying act is concerned the conflict of interest act yeah. 
um, and, a, and a few other people. You said this applies to officers of parliament? I think so. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I, I think so. I think they're also considered reporting public Well, I mean, someone's going to have a tough time finding a new job. Um, so, I mean, perks, perks of being near retirement. So, do you, me, do you want me to read, sort of set up the, the section at issue and then his ruling? And then well, we can talk, go from there? No, let, let me start with a okay. little bit more background Go ahead, then. Um, so, the Federal Accountability Act, which is an act, uh, which is the, the same act that we uh, spoke about. Whose architect was here the other week. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, that we spoke about the other week. Um, introduced many changes to the lobbying and conflict of interest and well, ethics regimes. Yes. Okay. Um, including uh, the statute we are about to discuss. And so, it's sort of a, a question of intent versus letter of the law. So, following the Federal Accountability Act, one of the changes that was put in place was an attempt to stop a fairly loose revolving door um, between political staff and civil servants in terms of political staff given priority hiring for sort of prime uh, public servant uh, positions. Yeah. So, the change that was introduced um, was a change that permitted civil servants to, or sorry, uh, political staff to apply as an internal candidate, so have a, uh, not an advantage in hiring, but being able to actually apply for the yeah. internal positions. It's an advantage over the general public, but... Yeah, yeah but not not within the civil service as opposed to a priority list. Yeah. Um, if they had more than three years of experience. So you work as a civil, uh, you work as a political staffer for four years of government, yeah. you lose government, uh, what options do you have? You can't formally lobby because right. you can't register. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't for work five years. For f- for five years, yeah. and you have a year cooling off for a lot of significant. Well, which is where you're coming that's to. That's where I was going. You can't work with any organization that you had quote unquote direct and significant uh, dealings. dealings with in the past year, two years for ministers, um, and so a lot of people gravitate towards the civil service. And now there's been sort of a reinterpretation of some of the rules around the cooling off periods that bar uh, political staff from entities, including public sector entities. Right. So I'll read the statute in question. So Section 35.1 of the Conflict of Interest Act says... Is it a conflict of interest act? Yes, it would be, wouldn't it? I believe so. Yeah. No former reporting public office holder shall enter into a contract of service with, accept an appointment to a board of directors of, or accept an offer of employment with an entity with which he or she had direct and significant official dealings during the period of one year immediately before his or her last day in office. Two, no former reporting public office holder shall make representations, whether for remuneration or not, for or on behalf of any person or entity to any depart any other person or entity to any department, organization, board, commission, or tribunal with which he he or she has direct and significant of- official. Sorry, this is a lot of words. During the period of one year immediately before his or her last day in office, I believe the second is the the Taze rule. Yes, yes. I, I mean they they both sort yes, of came, applied came into it. So his reinterpretation, and I will just. Yeah, read it ahead. into the record here. I am of the view that the prohibitions set out in Section 35 apply to all entities, including federal public sector entities. I want to inform you of this interpretation as it represents a departure from the office's previous interpretation. So what that means is that the cooling off period now applies to the federal public service. Which is frankly ridiculous. Yeah, well, yes. Take us away. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, here's why it's ridiculous. Um, I mean, I don't think anyone... Uh, I don't think anyone loved, I mean, sort of retroactively looking at the status quo, giving political servants uh, priority hiring into prime positions of the public service. I, I think everyone can sort of agree that that's 
a bad thing. Yeah, it seems unfair and undesirable. Um, what I don't think people agree is undesirable is leveraging the people who have experienced the highest levels of government to make a better civil service through a open and transparent process. Yeah. Um, which is the reality of people who are working in whatever department, they lose their job when, or they lose their job or they frankly get tired of working the long hours or the pressure or the stress or whatever it is at the political level, and they go down to the public service level, and they're able to bring that knowledge down and to make uh, the public service more receptive, understanding of the black box that is the minister's office. Yeah. And we always said um, in our time in government, some of the most receptive and responsive uh, public servants were the ones with um, histories in uh, ministers' offices. Include well, it would have been like ninety percent liberal ones, in, given the timelines involved. Yeah, entirely liberals. Yeah, um, and we we never uh, considered them any differently, except with their understanding of the constraints and the pressures that we we're operating under. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, it was considered a, an absolute positive on their resume. Um, however, this ruling effectively kiboshes that. And it's not clear why. Well, for one year. Well, yes. Yeah. For, for one year, but in terms of um, the incentives around getting yeah. into the job. No, no, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you can't become a lobbyist, you can't uh, serve in the a civil service, you have to be unemployed for a year after. Well, to some you, extent, you can't like, work with anyone in the industry that you worked in. Yeah, you, you can't even practice law to some extent. Like it's uh, no, I think there's an exemption around law. I think there were some issues. Well, I don't know exactly, but okay. At any rate, it does severely constrain your choices. And yes. Fights. Yeah. Can I? I can I just say from the sort of first principles sort of thing here, please, is that the whole point of sort of conflict of interest rules is that you don't want people to take advantage of their time in government for you know personal benefit. personal benefit and you know th- that sounds broad and i think there there is a sort of like inappropriateness versus appropriateness sure. that is written into the law and sort of that people can intuitively understand it that kind of is out the window though when you sort of going from one element of the crown to another element of the crown Right? Like, who is the loser here? Like, the public cannot really get ripped off in this exchange unless you taxation is theft libertarian. <laughs> um, but, like, yeah, like, it's just, like, where's who's where's the qui bono here, you know? like. So, I agree with all of that. And let, let me make one further point. The idea of how a minister's office operates with stakeholders and how a minister's office operates with civil servants is incredibly different in terms of the advantage that one can provide. Yeah. Um, Political staff can provide advantage to external stakeholders in terms of beneficial policies, in terms of... uh, Money in the budget for offering meetings, in terms of advocating for money, in terms of all sorts of things. Yeah. The same dynamic is not true backwards yeah. down into the department. Yes. Well, ministers go and have their meeting with the finance minister and they advocate for the budgets that their department is seeking. Yeah. You're not going to be hired by the surf clams branch for getting them another $15,000 in their travel budget that year. Like there's there's just not the directness of it. There's not the same incentive structure. I mean, I mean, it's just not like it's it's not a it's not a conflict of interest. I, there, yeah, like this is what I mean about like there's, it's, there's it's, no crown, conflict. it's crown to crown. Like it's just like you're just doing kind of the same work, but, so, so, and for the same 
ultimate beneficiary. So let me raise a few more hypotheticals just to sort of illustrate how ridiculous in practice this really would be. Um, so issues managers um, is sort of a position in the minister's office. Sometimes it's delegated to comm staffers or parallel affairs staffers. Um, but every morning they get on a issues call with the prime minister's office and every other's, every single other department of government um, represented by uh, minister's but, office staff. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I think it would technically be everyone who has a minister, like every ministerial office. Yes. Yeah. Close enough. Yeah. Um, and does this constitute direct and significant dealings? It depends. Is it significant for the other person? Because... Well, <laughs> so these political staff are going to be long gone. Are they going to track down the political staff that you engaged with? It's, it's not clear if what constitutes direct and significant here is... I, I mean, you can only presume yes. Well, no, like we do have um, the definition of direct and significant because that was what the... Like this at-issue topic in the Taze report the other year. No, and you're right, but it's just... The political staff who is henceforth retired and is surfing in Hawaii is going to be called upon to determine what was significant for his or her department. Like, it's just really weird. And yes, I'll, it is. <laughs> so it, the, the ruling uh, has, you know, a, a certain amount of conflict with even the Public Service Hiring Act or whatever it's called. You have it in front of you. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing so that you can correct me. Um the Public Service Employment Act. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that's what I was searching for. That's sort of the thing that establishes like hiring by merit, etc. Yes, like, all, but, all the parameters. But specifically have allowing for reporting public office holders to be hired in this way. Yeah. Um. So there's very, uh, very obviously a conflict between the two. But but the other thing that is more interested, uh, or is interesting to me as well, is the implication for the Stefan Zions, the Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, Cannons, we were talking about this. The John McCallum's. The like, John McCallum's of the world. I think technically, like if you. Like, just from my, my layman's reading of it, just it seems on its face that it would present a problem. So, here's the way I interpret it. Here, I mean, so there's a difference in the legislation in terms of terminology of reporting public office holder and former uh, reporting public office holder. And so, the change between those statuses seems, on the face of it, um, incredibly significant. So, the yes. day that you no, no longer hold that office, you become former. Right. Um, so if you become former for a day, you can't accept a new appointment. Um, but as so long as you maintain that status, you can. Hmm. So Stéphane Zion, if he leaves his office for a week as Minister of Foreign Affairs, he then would not be eligible for appointment to... Ambassadorship what, what, of wherever he was appointed Germany, to. Germany, Belgium, <laughs> who really knows. Um, the North. <laughs> because he would be a former reporting public office holder. And thus in, in a department which yeah. he had direct and significant dealings with, and then uh, and thus subject to a two year cooldown. Yeah. Um, the the option around this is the waiver process that's outlined in the act. Yes. But let me present and like maybe under exceptional circumstances around someone like McCallum or you know, maybe hypothetically they could get through the waiver. Maybe it's it's at the subject of the commissioner. Well, um, and also it's worth saying that the criteria are basically like, did you not matter? Right, like, and it's it's very hard to say the the minister did not, and then it's also very hard to say, but because this is a political appointment, we should give it a pass, right? Like, I think he he puts himself into a very strange box there. Let me present a more frivolous interpretation of it, which is to say, you're uh, the press secretary to the minister of fisheries and oceans. You. Uh, decide for whatever reason you want to take a break and you resign your position for okay. two months 
Can you then reclaim your position without a waiver? It's a federal political. It's a federal public entity, technically. Yes. I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> it's a really good question. What? Yeah, geez, I don't you, know. You are now a former public of, uh, well, recording public office holder, subject to the one-year cool-down provision uh, to work with departments or uh, public entities with which you had direct and significant dealings. Does your own department count? Let's take front of the show Paul Wilson's Disneyland story here, where he gets called, he gets into line at Disneyland, or Disney World, sorry, uh, with his family, and he gets told your ministry's being shuffled, you don't have a job. And then two you, hours you later, are, he gets to the front of the line. Yeah, and then, and, and then he gets to the front of the line two hours or later. Former republic. Yeah, and they call him and they say, "Good news, your minister got a job and like wants you to do this in that office." And it's like, great. Whew, I'm okay. But now, are you okay? I don't know. And like maybe this is on the minds of a lot of liberals right now as they sort of move around. Are all the people who, when Jane Philpott retired or resigned, like are they like I guess they're technically still in, but like what are they gonna do now? It's, it presents some real awkwardness and look. As much as it does give me some joy to see liberal political staffers with their fancy haircuts squirming a little bit, it is, like, pretty unfair. Like, it's it's really not good. Like, it really does dissuade people from doing valuable work, and, like, it's unfortunate. So, I I think this is, I mean, this is obviously Mario Odziano stepping into the position, um, conducting a review of how the former commissioner um, sort of ruled on things and coming up with a more ridiculous interpretation for the sake of being seen to lay yes. down the law. Um, but the good news for everyone except for the liberal staffers is that the statutory review of this legislation is at hand. Um, any any day now, I, I've been saying that for four months. Wait, but of the Lobbying Act or Conflict of Interest Act? Conflict of Interest. Is it actually up for review right now? I know the Lobbying Act is. Um, I actually don't think the conflict of interest acts up for you right now no <laughs> I, I can see that it'll, whoops it'll, it'll be worth looking into anyways yeah. it'll, it'll be up for review yeah i think there's gonna be some pressure <laughs> sooner rather than well, especially if the next parliament is a uh results in a minority government in which case people or, will be very anxious to or, or frankly you know the best um piece of legislation to amend this is via the budget implementation that's Act true next week that's flawless to do a, a hot fix in there um to avoid this sort of shit that's it and this is i think we, we had a very 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 brief discussion last week about this is that there's a ratchet effect here in the sense in the sense that like oh i see the liberals are making it an easier off-ramp for them through the budget implementation act again like wow pretty sneaky guys but this this is quite literally what like, but then it's like actually a pretty reasonable fix that yes. like does need to happen but like it like liberals ease restrictions on post-employment hiring options for political staffers is like not actually a headline you want right this second if you're the liberals to be honest which which is fair it's not a headline you want of for a government of any stripe at any time really but like but like honor among thieves insofar as political staff are concerned i i think there would be a consensus because like olo is subject to this as well sure but staff don't have um, to run for the like staff no but i mean staff making recommendations about how to pursue this sort of thing be like you know, it, yeah but it's coming from a place cool, of, let's yeah. cool our jets on this one minor minor thing it is like a one-day blip headline in order to let it let it go th- because this this change needs to happen like it, make, yeah. it frankly makes no sense no like, i agree with you right i agree with you substantively that like it's a kind of a, a bad and somewhat like pig-headed interpretation of the law 
and second that like it has a, a bad real world impact that i think is, is negative like overall but i really have trouble seeing the consensus for changing this emerge when there are points to be scored on it i don't know maybe you're right but i don't know i, I don't I, see it i don't know that there's a, enough point. i don't know that there's any points to be anyone who cares to explain this to the canadian people in, in a way the liberals are making it easier for yeah, so they're gonna say yeah. it's gonna make it easier for their staffers to get cushy jobs after leaving Hasht- like hashtag yeah. deep state who yeah knows? exactly like well, they won't even stress the public service side of it, right? They'll just say cushy jobs, and that'll be the end of it. Like, All right, next session. Don't finesse things. Um, don't overthink things. It's just such a good lesson. Uh, we want to talk about a very, very niche and, and wonky issue, which is that the Treasury Board, Secretariat, recently released a policy governing how um, automated decision-making will be governed and oh, reviewed. That's correct. It is actually a pretty fascinating piece of work, and as someone who has been generally speaking very very critical of how this government's handled tech files in general i was very pleasantly surprised by this and thought it was a really good step forward so do you want to give a high level primer around the concerns of algorithmic decision making sure. government yeah so this i think we've seen a lot of it in the us but basically what happens is that you have black boxes that are making decisions that often the people who make them don't fully understand uh, because it's working off data sets that they haven't, you know, completely reviewed themselves or what have you, or frankly, sometimes there's a bug. So wait, let, let's break that down. Okay, so a black box is a piece of software that the people using it are not familiar with how it works, so they don't have access to the source code. Be- and you made reference to training off data sets. Yes, which so is- AI, basically machine learning algorithms uh, get better at what they do and often at other stuff too, which is a lot unpredictable. Um, based off of data that they're sort of fed uh all the all the jokes on twitter they're like i fed a algorithm ten thousand hours of olive garden etc they're not very funny but like there you go actually like i was very uncharmed by those actually i always loved them i really didn't like them at all stay for the twitter review twitter meme reviews folks yeah so to, to give a very simplistic example of this you feed a computer a library and then you have it spit out a book and sure. it, it'll it'll write its own book, and the programmer sitting behind the screen doesn't know how the computer made the decision to put the words in the order that it did. Yeah. It just knows. They have a broad sense of the parameters. What, but, what yeah. it was fed, yeah. and what it was asked to produce. Yes. And often, like it's worth saying that, like I, I've read a couple of things on this, where where sometimes like machine learning algorithms will basically just do end runs around what people thought they were gonna do. Like there, I think someone taught one to play some sort of rudimentary platform game and like run up a high score, and it basically just like found a glitch and just exploited it to like run up until it crashed. Like it's just like, oh, well, I don't know how it did that. So the, the idea Speed there is, <laughs> in the real world, like what that means is, there, I think there was a case, so I think it was can, somewhere in the south in the U.S. where you have a you have some automated decision making for the um, sort of calculation of benefits payments for people on disability. Uh, and there was a case where someone basically had their like paid for time for like a you know a, a nurse basically to come to their home and sort of help them out with stuff was cut from forty hours a week because I think she had quite a severe disability uh, down to twenty five which was like crippling right and then she she took this the court the state to court and uh, they ended up having to basically like drag the people out who made the like, pro- program this thing and then they basically like had to go like tinker in the bowels and found out that it literally was a bug like it had just not been intentional 
Um, so that can have, like, it's really, you know, we joke about this and like, it's, it is like sort of funny in the abstract, but like, it really can have genuinely pretty like life changing and life harming results. And like, you do kind of need to know what you're doing with this stuff, especially when you're making these sort of state decisions that, that matter. Um, so where where are we in automated decision making in the government of Canada today? So there has been a directive issued as of about a month ago. Yeah, about a month ago, called the Directive on Automated Decision Making that sort of governs how these things will be used. Um, it's pretty impressive, and I'll just say I'll just read from it a little bit. They want to basically ensure that automated decision systems uh, are employed in a manner that reduces risk to Canadians and federal institutions and leads to more efficient, accurate, consistent, interpretable decisions made pursuant to Canadian law. Uh, and there's a fair... I'm just going to skip to the requirements here because I think that's actually the interesting part. So the first part that they have to have is an algorithmic impact assessment, um, which basically, like, what is this going to do? What does it require? What kind of data does it need? Uh, they have to basically provide notice that a de given decision is going to be made by an algorithm. They have to provide explanations of how that decision was reached. Uh, there is a sort of access to components um, directive in there, which is a little... We'll see how that ends up happening because the new NAFTA in Chapter 19, the digital chapter, had a sort of provision that or countries were not going to be allowed to ask for source code. Uh, and there are ways around that in the sense that you can have a black box audit. Uh, we talked about black boxes earlier. So typically, if you if you have access to source code, you can go through and sort of like run it through some hoops and figure it out. Black box audit, you just basically have to change the inputs and then see what you get. So you're basically, you don't know what's in it, but you're sort of gauging. Cause, cause and effect. Yeah, sort of, it's sort of, yeah, it's a cause and effect thing. It's It's less precise, but you can still do pretty good work with it. By the way, if I'm getting, if I'm being slightly imprecise for like the four like very deep tech people who listen to the show, please do actually let me know because I do want to be precise about this as much as I can. So please do yell at us. Um, no, no, just him. Just, just yell at him. <laughs> um, yeah. So at any rate, they actually have a pretty rigorous um, kind of schedule of who has to look at these things. I'm just going to go to the impact level requirements. Uh they have it three level or sorry they have a couple levels i'll start with that the first level level one is it's kind of a non-consequential decision and that any kind of decisions will lead to impacts that are reversible and brief quote unquote um that is moderate impacts high impacts very high impacts and then it's basically reversibility long or short term impact or harm and then there's different sort of requirements for who's going to look at them and, and what they're going to look at. The algorithm that determines which shelf the staples are put on. <laughs> yes, that one is probably fine. Um, the peer review requirement for level one, very low. There's actually none. Uh, level two and three, you need qualified experts from a federal, provincial, territory, and municipal government institution. Uh, qualified members of faculty of a post-secondary institution. Like uh, several other people. Publishing specifications of the automated decision system in a peer-reviewed journal. Like it's quite rigorous and then when you get to level four qualified experts from the national research council of canada statistics canada or the cse qualified members of a post-secondary institution and then goes on but it's like there's like really a lot of actual peer review impact assessment there uh notice is pretty good uh for low level doesn't need it for level two it's plain language notice uh level th three and four is a much like documentation basically of how it works uh level three and four have to have human in the loop on their decisions like i could go on all day but you get it 
Um, genuinely a quite impressive piece of work. I guess this would have been kind of the last couple, this would have been produced and sort of finalized while Scott Bryson was the digital affairs slash treasury board Likely, like, yeah. president. Um, so kudos because this is a really good piece of work Dude. and I'm sure people will find things to be unhappy about, but I think there's a lot to be quite happy in there. D- digital government. Yeah. Um, do you want to make reference to the two pieces I, f- I flagged in the notes? Did you, did you read that example? Um, yeah, I read the piece from the Institute on Governance, which is basically like, what are we worried about? Let's do it. Well, no, not <laughs> no, really. I know. I was exaggerating. <laughs> so, no, there, there was a Citizen Lab uh, report a while ago. Yes, at the University um, of Toronto, which is a sort of, they do sort of like public policy, tech, ethics, that kind of stuff. Yeah, but they're they're very much on the sort of cautionary hair, hair trigger. Yeah. Um, and there, there was a story that came in, I believe it was CBC at the time, about automated decision-making uh, pilot projects at IRCC. Yeah. Um, and I think it was, there was some generous interpretation of what the, um, checks and balances on these pilot projects were. Sure. And it sort of led to some conclusions that, you know, this is already here. Yeah. Um, where the Institute on Governance piece, um, that we're referencing speaks about, uh, how that's not necessarily the case. This was a pretty rigid pilot project. With uh, only a sliver of, I think it was IRCC, so something like risk assessments uh, being reviewed through the automated system, and then all of those being um, yeah, they were check, human, checked yeah, over. Yeah, they were human in the loop and reversible and appealable, yeah. and yeah. So no, you know, not wasn't not cause for panic. No, but like I said, I did outline that that case from the U.S. where you had people getting their benefits cut, and this is actually yeah. it was like not one incident. There were like a lot of incidents. I just remember that one because I think it was the main one discussed. This like it's a real thing, and I think people are right to be concerned. I will say two things about AI. The first is that I think we are people are realizing that the limits right now are harder than we would have anticipated three or four years ago in terms of like how far we're able to make progress on this like it seems like the the mood especially in silicon valley has kind of turned a little bit uh not entirely but just like it's not the kind of silver bullet i think people thought it was going to be a couple years ago even so take that for what it's worth and the other one is is sort of tabling the limitations is that like i think we had a couple cases over the last year or so when internal pressure from companies over work doing machine learning and AI work for government departments in the U.S. Once again, you had the sort of Project Maven thing at Google, which was doing Department of Defense work uh, for doing facial recognition software for drones. And there was some internal controversy as well at Amazon uh, over work for immigration assessment enforcement in the U.S. Um, So I think, once again, tabling the sort of... mm, the lessening of optimism about the potential power and benefits of AI, there are still at least enough concerns over what it, the real world harm it can do by the people who work on it that I think it is worth taking quite seriously that that is a, a real thing that can happen. Yes, uh, which is where calls for regulation of it uh, come in. Yeah. And this is, so the government, uh, to be clear, hasn't hasn't regulated on this yet. Um, no, and, and but it's this worth saying, directive is yeah. sort of the internal regulation of how yes. the government of Canada is going to use it yeah. prior to externally regulating. Yes, and I think it's a pretty pretty good if the if the template looks like that. I think that's great. Especially, I think it's really worth saying that this government has put a lot into AI as a sort of bet for uh, increasing productivity. That that secret sauce that we all love. 
um, like the the AI supercluster in Montreal. Like you you have um, yes, actually I was reviewing some ATIP documents the other day, and there was a briefing note to Baines on uh, access to on um, uh, on SNC leveling that included their their participation in AI research. So that's, that's quite funny. Um, yeah, so it's just like. We've we've ran the DPA through fifty-two <laughs> algorithms and, <laughs> and every single one of them. Computer says we're fine. It's like uh, the uh, the Ultimate Fighter. What was it? The uh, uh, Ultimate Warrior. Ultimate Warrior. Ultimate Warrior. Yeah, that was quite Slytherin a Slytherin Studios. That was quite a laugh. Yeah, Slytherin Studios is like war games. No, they they never existed. I, I looked them up. They look the. Slytherin Studios is a company that makes board games. That's fine. But yeah. the, the company that made the scrolling Excel oh. sheet that was supposed to be the, I see. the, the algorithmic the <laughs> simulation of whether or not the samurai yeah. could beat the specs. Well, that's I, I'm, that's I, I was very concerned about that looking through the, the treasure board regulation. That there was nothing <laughs> in there. It was like, can a werewolf beat a sort of ninja? I don't, I don't know. Um, no, but any, at any rate, all that to say that, yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see the approach you take. I think there are some people in the AI industry who are very leery of regulation and say, we need the biggest data sets possible. So, you know, if we have privacy regulations, we'll all die. Uh, others are much more, I, I will say ethically minded. I think that's obviously biased towards my point of view. Uh, I think that they're more sanguine about having a balance between people needing to trust the industry and people needing to trust the technology and not just imagining that they live in a dystopia all the time. Worth saying, once again, the dystopia is already here in some parts of the world. And you look at China's social credit system mm-hmm. and facial recognition and stuff there. Like, it, it's really, like, it's not that difficult to imagine. Like, it really isn't. Um, so I think that the fears about it are, people are right to be leery. And I think companies are, are right to try to address those concerns. Sure. Okay. I'm going to cut you off before you go. Yeah, I think I was I was done. I was before done. Before you go too far. I think we're at our time cap. We are pretty much at our time cap, so we'll, we'll cut her off there. Good thing we did uh, 25 minutes on SNC leveling. Uh, <laughs> Five minutes. Um, so great. Uh, our beer this week was Life in the Clouds from Collective Arts. Uh, genuinely very, very quite good. A really good hazy IPA of the sort of sun split. Uh, what's the other one from Vermont? Uh, Hetty Topper? That's, no, no, that's no. The, the sun, Sip of Sunshine. That's, sip, what, I'm thinking. Oh, sip of that's sunshine. what I'm thinking of. I mean, it's it's a Vermont style IPA. Yes. I, I will say that Life in the Clouds is good. Lunch Box or Lunch, lunch money, money is garbage. I've I've never enjoyed it. Yeah, so that's why we don't drink it here. I will say another thing with the Life in the Clouds, depends on which bottle you get because they have different art series. Sure, like the one with the soda. Yeah, the one with the Howling Baboon <laughs> Sky Fortress on the front of it is excellent. And if you can find that one, I hope you enjoy the, the art on that. Um... I guess otherwise you can follow us at shortpantspod on twitter.com, uh, yes, the best and, of all websites. And do you can cyberbully uh, us there. The the rate and review. On, yes, I was, on I was thinking the other day we haven't said that recently. Which, so which most of you are delinquent on. So. Yeah, please do that. It is genuinely, it, it helps people find the show, which is good because then more people listen to it. The number gets higher and, and we feel really good inside. It, it puts a smile on my face. It does. Else. Yeah, it feels really good. So that'll be it for us today. Thank you once again for listening and we will talk to you the next time we record. Bye-bye. Oh, wait. Also, it's budget next week. Oh, yeah. But you're going to Columbia. I'm not going to be here for budget. (laughs) So we'll see what we do there. Maybe I'll do an episode of someone else or something. Yeah, TBD. Yeah, TBD. Bye, everyone.